Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hello, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is Season 4, Episode 13. It's mid-February here, and it's practically spring in Houston. We have red buds and native plums, and other trees are blooming, and if a tree isn't blooming quite yet, it has buds in preparation for blooming or leafing out. Daffodils are coloring our right away out front, and we're alternating between warm periods in the 70s and dipping back into the 30s and 40s every few days. And those 70 degree days really make you want to get out and dig in the earth. I'm already strategizing my edible garden sowing for warm crops, and my tomatoes were moved outside from their cozy home on a heating mat and from under the lights in preparation to be planted in the edible garden, hopefully in early March. It's kind of tempting to get them out sooner, but Mother Nature, she's been known to throw us a curveball of ice storms in early March, so we're going to wait and watch. Today's guest is one you likely already listen to every week, a soothing voice in your podcast feed, or if you're lucky enough to hear her over the radio waves in Northern California, directly into the dial on your radio via North State Public Radio. Jennifer Jewell brings the garden world cultivating place, a weekly mix of educational and inspirational gardeners from all over the garden world. Finding and listening to her podcast has been one of the highlights of my podcast feed, and I suspect yours too. I wanted to have Jennifer on the podcast to hear the other side of the conversation, the one where we get to know the person who is usually doing the interviewing. I knew tidbits of Jennifer's life from the conversations in her show and through her wonderful monthly newsletter. Do subscribe if you aren't. (laughs) But I wanted to know more and to hear a bit of what it's like to host her gardening radio show, her life as a garden writer, and a bit about the gardens she's cultivated over the years. There were many eye-opening moments for me, particularly on the ins and outs of producing a radio show, as you're going to hear, and I can't say this enough, if you really enjoy what someone is creating, anyone, it could be a podcast or a writer or an artist, support them by donating to their podcast, writing a review, buying their artwork, and most of all, spreading the word to those around you. Those of us who create rely on a network of enthusiastic people to sustain that ongoing creativity, to share the word. So with that, you can find the show notes for the episode at thegardenpathpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter. My apologies if you already signed up. I did not send one out in February. You did not miss anything. Sorry. Life kind of got in the way. And you can find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. All right. And now on to the episode. Well, first, thank you for coming on the podcast. You know, it's kind of, I like to talk to I've talked to several different podcasters and people before, and it's always kind of different to have them on the other side of things when they're used to interviewing other people. So I hope, uh, I hope this is interesting and different for you. So yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. And um, yeah, thank you for asking me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think most people are familiar with who you are if they listen to garden podcasts, but maybe they don't know much about your background, how you even came to a radio show and um, <laughs> all that good stuff in the background. I mean, I could clean what I could from your website and your, your profiles, but maybe start with your background in, you know, journalism and writing and, and gardening and just how you came to be where you are today. Sure. I, uh, I'm a 53 year old woman living in Northern California and I was raised in Colorado, born and raised in Colorado to a family who moved to Colorado while they were pregnant with me for my father to do his PhD work in wildlife biology. So all of my extended family is on the East Coast. My mother was uh, was a gardener. She died 21 years ago and she was a professional gardener and floral designer. And when she and my father moved to Colorado, she became very educated about and active with native plants and the native plants of Colorado because moving from New York and Boston to the Colorado climate was a big change for her and and them in particular but they love the west and they stayed in the west and that is where I was raised and I just learned to garden just like my sisters did with my mom and we did a lot of field work with my dad so we we learned native plant names native animal names ecosystem communities And that was just part of what regular life was. And so I just always, I love to garden. And 
I, as I, I think as is not unusual for gardeners that if you're introduced to it when you're young, you sometimes, most people seem to go through kind of a dormant period in their late teens and early twenties before they actually have adult brain and adult ground to work in. Um, So it wasn't until I was uh, a young married person with a house that, and a job, a real job that I started really gardening myself. And that was in Seattle. And I went to school, I majored in English and it was when I was working at Microsoft uh, on their Encarta encyclopedia in Seattle, while my husband at the time was in medical residency that I started writing about gardens. And it was kind of in that same falling in love with my first own garden where you wake up in the morning at like five o'clock and you want to be out there and see what's happening. And <laughs> you don't want to go to bed until you've said goodnight to the garden. Um, and it was, to be honest, you know, living in Houston and some of the other areas you've lived in, that to have your first garden be in a mild climate like that in <laughs> Seattle, where uh, there's a fantastic horticultural community and fantastic growing conditions, that was a great place to fall in love with gardening for your for for myself for the first time. So, um, but that's also with the work at um, Microsoft. That's when I started writing about gardens as well, and the the two things kind of came together. Wow. So I can imagine going from Colorado and a, a high desert sort of um, vibe and alpine plants and that sort of thing to, yeah, to Seattle or to that area where it's a lot wetter and a lot nicer and you can grow so much more and so many different things that it's pretty much a, it's mind boggling probably. Yeah, it was, it was quite an epiphany. And I grew up at 8,000 feet in sort of Ponderosa Pine Forest community in Colorado. But we spent a lot of time on the Western Slope in uh, an area called Paonia and big fruit growing area. And so I was I was familiar with those two different environments, but we also traveled to the East Coast a great deal. I had grandparents in um, Boston and New York and then another set of family in South Carolina. So and they were all gardeners. So I was very familiar with gardening outside of my own zone as well. And I think you, especially as we age and have the, the greater benefit of um, hindsight and <laughs> greater foresight, I hope, you get, a, you get a, a real feel for what different zones bring and what different plant communities bring. And so that, that's been fun to see mature over over my lifetime so right so I mean if you grew up around gardening and you grew up you know doing field work with your with your dad was the desire to not go into the field of horticulture or or wildlife science or anything like that how did you choose not to do that and instead went into writing did you also always kind of grow up having a a passion with um, writing or liberal arts and just kind of wanted something more generic like what made you choose that I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I'm I'm a reader writer by nature. I'm very verbal and I love gardening and I love horticultural study and inquiry, but I never saw it as work until I was pregnant with my first child and I was doing quite a bit of writing for a local newspaper about gardens, and it was my way of getting a little balance outside of working at Microsoft. And as I started writing about gardens while I was gardening and I was growing this little baby, it kind of became apparent to me that to pull all these things I loved together made a lot of sense. And then I went through a period of time where I kind of explored these different pathways the way young adults do. And you kind of go down a path a little way and then you say, nope, not that one. Uh, for, for whatever reason, like it just doesn't feel exactly right. So I tried writing for the local newspaper and I liked it. Uh, and then we moved to England 
with my husband at the time having a fellowship there. And so we were there for almost two years. I had a little baby. I had no working papers. And um, sort of halfway through that, I became pregnant with our second child. So I spent a lot of time in the car with my little, my my first daughter, who was very little, uh, visiting gardens. And I have a lot of family in England from my mother's side. Her father's whole family remained in England when he came over. And so I just had, I had time and opportunity to do a lot of traveling and thinking and observing and considering. And so that's when I started writing for glossy magazines and I started with gardens illustrated. And then when we got back to the U S I began working for house and garden and I did that as well as starting with um, Colorado homes and lifestyles when we returned to the U S and my husband took his first practice job in Loveland, Colorado, not Loveland, the ski area, but Loveland, Fort Collins area. And I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be home with my children as long as I could. And that freelance writing was a great option. Uh, but I knew pretty quickly into that. I didn't love the glossy magazine way of working with gardens and plants. It was very consumer driven. It was very aesthetically driven, which isn't a terrible thing as long as it doesn't feel like you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses, which is kind of what it started to feel like. And I, there was something that sat really wrong with me about trying that out of necessity, I don't think it was out of any inherent evil in glossy magazines, but they have to make a living. And if they were making a living through advertising, then they had to sell this idea of a lifestyle. And that just felt worse and worse for me as time went on. And as a freelance writer, most people know you have to work really, really hard <laughs> and you get paid very, very little. So to work really, really hard, get paid very little, and then feel like a sellout uh, didn't make a lot of sense to me. We then moved to Northern California um, in 2007, the fall of 2007. And it, was a perfect break for me to say, what do I want to do? My children are now both in school. And if I don't want to write for glossy magazines, what do I want to do with this thing that I love? I loved writing. I loved gardening. I loved natural history. And I just happened to be in the car maybe a month into living in Northern California. And I heard a call for help from our local public radio station saying they needed volunteers to come and write public service announcements. And where we lived in Colorado, our local public radio station had a garden program. And every time the garden program came on, I would want to turn the radio off. And I would say, this is so boring and so dry and so not what I want to know about gardening that um, anybody could do better than this. And that sounds like a mean thing to say, but it was an observation that I wasn't, as a gardener myself and a thinker and a feeler, I was not being served by that garden program. So it was no criticism of this man who ran it as a person. It was just I would, I wanted something different. And so when I moved to California and heard this call for PSA writers, I went into the station and I said, I would be happy to write your PSAs. And I have an ulterior motive. And that is, I would like to propose a garden program and uh, me hosting it. And there was this fabulous older public radio voice guy named Joe O, who was the one who took my request. And he said, how soon can you put that together? <laughs> I said, pretty soon. And, and he said, do you have enough material for a year? And I said, I have enough material for five years, Joe. And he said, do you remember that scene in Mary Tyler Moore where Mary Tyler Moore walks into the news office and she meets Lou Grant and Lou Grant says, 
you're really perky. And, <laughs> and she smiles back at him and he says, I don't like perky. Joe <laughs> O had me laughing. And uh, so he and I started to put it together and I never wrote PSAs. And we launched the first iteration of the radio program, which at the time was called In a North State Garden. And it was a four-minute weekend program that introduced the listening audience to interesting people doing interesting things in gardening and natural history around my North State area, which is about 10 counties in interior Northern California. It's a huge area and it has a lot of different growing zones and climates and microclimates. It's not hugely densely populated. It includes the cities of Chico and Redding. It goes almost down to the top of Sacramento and then up to the Oregon border and kind of the, the the peaks of the coastal ranges to the east, to the west, and then the peaks of the Sierra Nevada coming up from the south and the Cascades coming down from the north. So, uh, but it's, it's enormous. People equate it to, it's about the same size as the state of Ohio. It's a big area. Yeah, it is. It's a lot bigger than um, I imagine it to be. Yeah. So it was really, and, and I, I basically had the confidence to say I have enough material for that long a period of time because I think you as a gardener will recognize or relate to, like any gardener, the first thing you do when you move into a new area is you go find your other gardeners and you yeah. you meet them and you start talking and you visit the nurseries and the farmers markets and the roadside stands and the farmers. And so that was a very... Uh, that was a very natural impulse on my part to just go out and try and find my community of people and then chat with them for a little while and let them, you know, kind of introduce themselves to the listeners. And it was really, really well received. And it was, as, as I'm sure you know, too, there, it was a service that a lot of these small gardeners, business people, organizations who were doing public advocacy, they'd never had the ability to get their voice out there in a particularly organized or consistent fashion. So it was really, it, it hit a need here, both in the gardening community and horticulture community, as well as in the listening and gardening, um, not consumers, but, you know, the home gardeners really loved this connection and met and heard about people they'd never heard of before. Right. Well, I want to go back just a little bit. You have been writing in these magazines. Were you doing speaking engagements too, giving presentations to anybody? And I mean, how did you, I mean, you said you just kind of felt like this confidence come out and you just knew you could do this. Um, but I mean, going from writing and then to radio seems like a big jump. Like how did you feel about that change? I am a natural introvert and I did not do a lot of speaking prior to getting on the radio. Uh, luckily most of radio work involves you in a closed room with a microphone, not a large (laughs) of people. I, but shortly after beginning the radio program, I certainly started getting quite a few invitations to speak and I, I now do it quite regularly. I, I know, and I, you probably experience the same thing is that you get a lot of invitations to speak and one invitation to speak sort of begets many more. So you have to really think about do is what I want to do, be a public speaker. And it is is not what I want to do. I really want to give voice to other people best I can. So the radio part though, was I, it was one of those moments where you feel like the universe pointed you in the right direction. You know, when I was sort of talking about how you go down a path and you get to a point and you're like, no, this is not the path. And sometimes that's because it's too hard. Like you hit too many obstacles and you think, okay, this, there's a reason this is too hard. Right. When I, when I went in and started working on this program with Joe Olekshevitz, 
and and let me be clear it's a teeny tiny station they have no budget i did this as a volunteer project for 7 years oh wow while, while i worked on other things and continued to do freelance writing and then worked at a um, the local natural history museum and did freelance work at the university so this was absolutely a labor of love and but Joe O was a career public radio person and he mentored me so kindly and he would work on my scripts with me, with me. He would work on my delivery with me. He would work on my pacing. The younger interns at the station taught me how to edit. So I do all of my own editing of the programs that I put out every week, there's, it's, it's a tiny station and they have very few resources for uh, supporting this kind of work. And so it was the, the universe put those resources in my way and I uh, was able to follow through on them. So that, that, that is how that happened. And certainly in the first year, you can hear how <laughs> nervous I am. <laughs> and I did, at that time, I did most of my interviewing in person so that we'd be in the recording studio little room at the station and the other person would be right across from me. That definitely was a skill and an art that took some time to, to develop and settle into. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, how, how long were you, you said it's four minutes. How long were you recording people and then cutting down all of that, that content? Right. So when it was Joe O with me the first three or four years, he would time us very carefully. So I had to have worked out exactly how many questions I could ask and exactly how long the other person could speak. Joe O was old school and he did not like to edit and he didn't like all the fancy editing software. And it wasn't until Joe O was getting close to retirement and a young intern came in who said, Oh, don't worry about that. We'll just put it on audition. I'll cut it to size. We're good. <laughs> and I thought, what? That is so easy. Um, Joe would give me, you know, um, time markers through the window to tell me when we were close to the time. And then I had a hand signal for the guest so that when we were getting close to them needing to stop talking so I could say thank you, goodbye, mm -hmm. uh, I would put my hand in the middle of the table and kind of wherever they were in their answer, they just had to stop talking. Oh. <laughs> it was, but it was, it was not necessarily elegant or graceful, but it certainly taught me a lot about being disciplined in terms of timing and getting better at giving verbal cues myself as an interviewer for the person that I'm, I'm speaking with. Now I maybe record maybe 15 minutes more than I need and then I do all of the pre-editing before I send it to back to the station and um, an engineer does the final sort of fragmenting of the different pieces to include the news breaks and things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, so I guess because you had those four minute conversations with people, was it the desire to connect with them for longer periods of time and find out more from them that, led to Cultivating Place or how did that transition? Well, I was doing it in our state garden for about seven years. And what became apparent to me, a couple things became apparent to me. I did quite a bit of seasonal interviewing and seasonal calendar keeping for our region. So the garden clubs and the plant societies and the seed swaps and the seed library and the different farmers who had events or lecture series or whatever it might be. They all sent me information and I kept a public calendar. And I had kind of a, a rotating series of different categories of kinds of interviews. So I would have what's happening in the garden this time of year, what's happening in the gardening community this time of year, what are, what are the native plant societies doing, what are the edible people doing. And there were very clear sort of subcategories within the gardening community in my area. And they were the floral designers, the native plant people, 
and the edible plant people. And they they kind of didn't have a lot of overlap. The fourth really strong community here is our Rose Societies. Mm. They're really well, all four of those subcategories are well organized, have very clearly differentiated organizations and groups and community gatherings. So after seven years, this is when I sort of got to the point of there are so many people out there teaching us how to garden, like how to prune your tomatoes, how to trellis your cucumbers, how to, when to fertilize, when, you know, that the world didn't need me to be another one of these people. Like if if what you want is to know how to avoid end rot, (laughs) I'll send you to, to three or four different resources who are, who are fabulous and out there already doing a great job. Um, Same thing with the, with the native plant people. And so after seven years, I was kind of like, well, not, not that I got bored, but it became, it became consistent enough in what was coming up and what to do and what to see. And that I thought, okay, maybe my time is, maybe my time is done. Maybe this has reached the end of its life. And at that same time, we had a change of administration at the radio station and the new general manager. So Joe O had retired and the station manager had retired and a new station manager came in. And one of the things she loved about our station was some of our local programming. And she thought that it could be really built on. And she came to me Uh, as well as one of the other locally produced programs called Blue Dot and said, I want to see this built up. Podcasts had, you know, quadrupled, uh, had grown exponentially in being a thing from 2007 until 2014 when this Mm -hmm. all started in conversation. And, And she said, you know, would you be interested? And I said, I would be interested, but I would love to expand it. I would love it to be longer and have a little more time to talk with people. I would love to see it be more broadly focused than just my, our region specifically. Um, and they said, great, go for it, put it together. And I think at the same time, which has to do with age and the kind of maturing of our own interests as, as we age. And my girls are now, uh, my, my youngest is a senior in high school. So you have more time to think about different kinds of things in a different way. Right. Uh, it became apparent to me that the natural history part of what I liked to talk about was very important to me. And I saw gardeners, especially in my region where, the native plant aspect and the natural history aspect of our region is really um, vibrant and energized Mm -hmm. because we live in a biodiversity hotspot. We have big, big tracks of open space and national and state parks and um, more endemic rare plants and endangered plants than almost anywhere on the planet. Like we, we are just this incredibly interesting geological and therefore biological location. And that crossover with gardeners is really compelling to me because I can look down my suburban neighborhood street and see in a state that has very little water, Right. And get the right. lot of, a lot of press for having very little water. I actually live in the, the wetter part of the state, but we, we, we live in a, a summer dry climate. We live on a very specific geological uh, history and therefore have all these really interesting plants and animals and insects that come with them. And our gardeners, by and large, our mainstream gardeners, aren't connected to that. And we, I, I just feel really strongly that we as a community of people on this planet aren't going to make a difference if those gardeners can't get connected to that reality. 
that there's some connection in there that is still not being made. And I think you, in your conversations with your guests and me and my conversations with my guests, sometimes I feel like we're saying the same thing over yes. and over, <laughs> over again, but I have to, I have to then look out my office window from my home office and say, we can't say this enough. We right. cannot make this connection enough ways, enough different ways, enough times until every single lawn down my street is no longer an over-fertilized, over-watered <laughs> green lawn in what should be a chaparral. Right. Um, and, and I also know, too, that I it's not about a stick. It's not about beating someone up about how wrong they are or how bad they are. It is making that connection through through heart and through awareness and engagement. It's because it's beautiful and better for for the environment and more satisfying for us individually. And I, you know, I also live in <laughs> a uh, very publicly progressive state. Uh, who spends a lot of time at battle with our current national administration um, over lots of things like fair wages and immigration. And these are all tied into the gardening and horticultural community in really interesting ways to me. So um, you cannot, you know, I, I say this in my program and on my website, but I see gardens as really important intersectional spaces and potential agents for change for the better in our world. And you, you can't almost pick out one single issue that we're struggling with as a nation or as a planet and not be able to tie it back to how gardeners could be helping with that. Right. Whatever it could be, you know, it could be indigenous sovereignty rights. It could be food security. It could be, the plastic island in the middle of the <laughs> Pacific Ocean that's the size of Texas, you know, gardeners play a part for the better or for the worse in every single one of these issues. And we're an enormous cohort of people. We are something like 38% of the United States based on the last census. 38% of all households engage in gardening. So, if we were more as a cohort on the same page in a couple of these ways, we, we might make a huge difference. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot. I feel like you can repeat yourself so many times and people receive that information. And I think the implementation is sometimes the hardest part and fighting off what's culturally ingrained in us from, you know, years and years of, of bad information and stereotypes that we've become accustomed to what we expect our, our lawns and yards to look like, or, you know, yeah, like you said, you have to repeat it a million times before you finally uh, accept it. And I think it's that, that acceptance and implementation that is the hardest at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it comes from, I hope that any paradigm shift at that level comes from so many different sources that are all working. And there does seem to be this, this fabulous sort of zeitgeist of conversation at this level about the importance of gardening and gardeners. And, you know, you will hear some conversations in which people get kind of all upset about how, <laughs> you know, puritanical the native plant advocates can be or right. how, how puritanical people can get about, you know, permaculture or, or whatever it might be, their own little take. Uh, and that, you know, why would we have everything be edible? What happened to the ornamentals? They're important too. And, you know, every there's there's so many places at this table, and I I think you're right that the pair that there are so many years of of a different paradigm that it's going to take time and a lot of conversation. Where you know even people who are 
seemingly on the same page still have a lot to learn. I have yes. a lot to learn, right? Same, and, same. <laughs> um, and that's the great joy. That's part of the fun of it is that it is a discovery and, and you can never know everything there is to know about, about gardening or how it interacts with our natural environments or other gardeners and their stories. And it all is really, it's full of optimism and opportunity. So in a typical week for you, you went from working for free and volunteering to produce this podcast uh, to your, your first uh, radio show to now working, I would assume full time on, on cultivating place. What is a typical week like for you? Um, how are you getting your guests? And you said you do a lot of the editing yourself these days, but I know you do have support from a producer and some other people. Maybe kind of give a little bit of background on how you make all this work. Um, we never really make everything work. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I wish we did. Uh, and I love that I can even say like, our producer is and our engineer is because uh, those are, of course, in a small station or any small gathering of people working on something, they're all wearing like 47 different hats. So Sarah Bohannon, who has who is the term producer, uh, is who originally sat in the little room opposite me and did the recording on the boards. And then the file would come to me the audio file comes to me and I edit it to the length and the content that I, I want for clarity and, and length mostly. And, you know, and sometimes you'll be in a, the middle of a conversation and you'll ask a guest something and they'll start an answer and then say, wait a minute, I want to, let me go back. I'd like to redo that. So right. I, I generally edit those parts out for length in the, the on air program. And Sarah, who is, uh, I think in her early thirties and came out of the journalism and uh, public engagement school at California state university of Chico. Um, she and I really had a lot of kind of dreams of making it better and making it tighter and making it cleaner and having a, a clearer mission for the kinds of guests and work. So, you know, we work like that. And then we had the fire uh, as you know, in early November last year, my region lit up and the town just next to ours was burnt to the ground. And at that time, Sarah, who was also the news director at the radio station, uh, was pulled off of working on my program and podcast. And another young man of Native American descent, um, indigenous descent, he is now being the one to record me. Um, with me. And so he is now called the engineer. So it's yeah. like so fancy. Yes. Um, but what it means now is that uh, hopefully, so he records with me and then sends me the file. I edit it. I send it back to him. He adds in the music and the breaks where they need to go for the on-air part. And mm -hmm. that's the engineering. Um, I find my guests everywhere, just a little bit like you do. You kind of follow what is of interest to you. You follow what's seasonal to you. You, you know, you hear an idea and you think, Ooh, I'd like to talk to someone about that. So next week I'm talking to fire ecologists. Oh, I like that. Um, which is, you know, we had the California burns quite regularly as you see in the, as well yeah. as you tell, the rest <laughs> of the world only sees our natural disasters. Um, you know, we have, floods and dam breaks. And so when that all happened, and, and as I say, we, we burn quite regularly. This is not the first time, but this has been the worst. And when I first came in 2007, in the spring of 2008, we had a big fire come through um, in directly approximate to the city of Chico. And the a friend of mine lost their house and they came to live with us while they were figuring out what to do. Those same friends had relocated from uh, having been evacuated from Hurricane Katrina. Mm, my goodness. Um, so then they moved here. They lost their house in 2008 and then they just lost it again. <sighs> most recent fire. So that's kind of a digression. It's not unusual is my point. We 
should be if we aren't very used to living with fire in Northern California. The interesting thing to me is some of the um, changes and advances in the fire ecology in our state, uh, in our region, some really interesting research going on in um, different modes of wildland suburban interface of what truly are ladder fuels, what aren't ladder fuels, what come back really well, how long does it take to tell which species are going to recover and which aren't. Um, A lot of really interesting research coming out of Australia in the same fields, very similar climate uh, and fire patterns in areas of Australia. They have some cutting edge fire studies and the ways in which gardeners and, um, you know, homeowners can be working to live more, more effectively with fire is, is fascinating to me. So it's that, that kind of thing that comes up in our own lives. So you follow those pathways and I, am now headed into the fourth year of cultivating place. And I am finally starting to not feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose as I <laughs> and, and that I can plan with a little bit more pacing what I want the year to look like. And um, as I had mentioned before, I was working at the Gateway Science Museum, which is a science and natural history museum on the campus of CSU Chico. And I was their uh, native plant garden curator and developer and also developed natural history exhibits for the museum and did quite a bit of their volunteer program management. So I have now cycled off of that because I just finished writing my first book. And um, so yeah, I work on on the radio program. That didn't really answer your question. That was a really terrible <laughs> response to what does my week look like. But that kind of like based on what you just saw my head looks like, that's what my week looks like. And um and it's my my youngest daughter's last year in school. So I try and be available to her. But I probably spend at least 40 hours a week on the radio program. And as you I'm sure are fully aware that if you are trying to Think about guests, schedule guests, prep guests, yes. record with guests, edit guests, yes. you know, post <laughs> and then follow up. It is, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of time and thought and um, it's, it's a lot of work. Right. And it's great work, but I, it's, it's a lot of work. Right. So. Well, you just happen to be in the position where you can make a living from it. <laughs> Which is very lucky for you. And um... no, oh, wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna pop right in there. I absolutely do not make a living from this. Oh, okay. Um, and I I wish that I did, and that w- really should be the goal um, to do this. But I couldn't do this if I ha- didn't have um, hadn't been working full time, um, you know, prior to doing this. It's I don't know, especially. Uh, anyone in this kind of work that is sort of more of a calling than a profession per se, uh, who doesn't have a patchwork of things. You know, I still do freelance writing. I still do some editing. I was working on the book. I just finished at the museum halfway through last year. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't, I don't know very many people who can make a full living and pay all of their bills doing this kind of work. I wish, I wish they could. Okay. I guess to me, it came across, um, and maybe this is just my a, a bias that I have in thinking people who have radio shows are probably doing better and able to make a living off of that. But I guess I didn't really understand. Is that common for other small stations, like other people with other smaller radio um, shows that be in the same situation? I don't know the answer to that. I think that radio is doing better than maybe I know they're doing they they feel more solid moving forward than say newspapers but I think that it's not dissimilar and so for a local production single show producer which is what I am there's no way that a small radio station can 
can have you on salary or, okay. or employ you. I work as an at-will contractor. And um, so donations to the radio station in support of the program help. At this point, because I have managed to patchwork together other income sources, I have not yet had to go too deeply into um, sponsorship or underwriting. I'm sure I'm not necessarily against it on principle. It's just a whole nother element to put your head around. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but, you know, I think you can see from most other uh, people in this position, there's a lot of hustle to try and try and find ways to um, earn something from doing this work. Um, if I charged by the hour, I would be making way less than minimum wage. <laughs> right. No, I completely understand. Thanks for the insight because I, honestly, and I don't think many people would understand that. I mean, I know on the podcasting perspective, you know, people are hustling with Patreon and, you know, yeah. these little sponsorships and things like that. So I understand from that aspect, but I guess because there are so many radio show produced type podcasts out there too, I guess I didn't really understand the full side of that story. And I mean, obviously you're not speaking for them, but I can see there's probably some equivalency in there. Yeah. I think there are some, I mean, I, I would equate working at a small local public radio station to working for a small local nonprofit of any variety. So it is always a precarious endeavor. I'm guessing, I mean, I think I'm a little bit like you in that I look at other bigger stations and I think, oh, it must be all rosy over there. Right. (laughs) Because there are certain stations that you, we know of, you know, I mean, you can look at WNYC or Mm -hmm. WKQED out of San Francisco, you know, and, and they have really put a lot of time and investment into podcast units that Mm -hmm. support really well. Um, you need a lot of staff and resources to do that as a whole department, I would say. So my radio station certainly isn't there, but you know, I'm not also going to downplay to have a studio to record in right? (laughs) and to be able to serve a known listenership is, is, is great. I mean, those are two um, wonderful, wonderful attributes. So. Well, Thank you for sharing all that because honestly, like I said, I didn't know. I think a lot of people will be very interested in that and hopefully they'll be hitting the donate button. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. Hit, hit the donate button often. Uh, well, I'd like to transition. I think you post your garden sometimes, but I don't really think I have a good idea of like how big it is, like what kind of things you really enjoy gardening and planting with. And then maybe you could talk even about some of the previous gardens you've had that you've left behind that you maybe, maybe miss some plants that you can't grow in California that, you know, grew in water filled, you know, Seattle sort of thing. Right. Well, so let's, we'll go to the past. My first garden was a suburban neighborhood garden in Seattle in the Ballard area prior to Ballard being really high end fancy, which I guess it is now. It was not when we were there <laughs> and, um, and that was lovely. Um, and it was not dissimilar to the house and garden I'm in now in terms of size and aspect. It had a little front yard, maybe 20 feet deep. And then a, a larger back garden and two sort of narrow side gardens with other houses on each side. And and that's the way it is in my current house. And I, when I was in Seattle, I just, I just dove in and I had great little nurseries around me. And I just went and said, I want daffodils and I want peonies and I want fruit trees and I want roses and I want a big blousy English perennial border and, um, and I had two little raised beds for vegetables and I had raspberry canes and I, in my exuberant youth planted a weeping willow in the backyard (laughs) and, um, it outgrew our house and garden within about 18 months. And I went, huh, okay, that was not (laughs) the right plant. Um, I'm sure it tapped into the local water system. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We learn from our mistakes. You think I'm going to plant all the self seeders 
and then they swallow your garden whole, yep. right? And um, so that that's part of the learning curve. And then in England, we were in three or four different houses and apartments. And, you know, we were in like a, a dormitory room where I had little plants on the windowsill. And then we were in an, an apartment where I had some pots on the back stoop. And then we were in a house that had a tiny little back garden, but not soil per se. It had kind of a courtyard. So I had more pots. And then when we first moved back to the United States and I was in Colorado, we lived in a fantastic old farmhouse that had a long, deep lot. And it had four mature, tall, just beautiful old ponderosas at the very back of the property. And it had three enormous cottonwoods at the front of Mm. the property. And the girls were little and we just spent all of our time outside and we called the cottonwoods, the grandmothers, and we would (laughs) talk to them as we like walked out to go walk around the neighborhood or get to preschool. Um, and I had a lovely little enclosed vegetable garden there. And because I was with the girls and they were home with me, it was just, it was like outdoor preschool all the time. It was nice. And we had a little playhouse and I, I had, it it was the same. I've, I think I always tend towards the same mix of things in terms of until this house that I am currently in, I have always moved into areas that had big existing mature trees. And that kind of sets the tone. It Mm -hmm. also sets some of the exposure issues because of shade and root competition and um, different soil uh, beneath the big old trees. So I always tend towards a mix of some edibles, more ornamentals. I definitely tend more towards ornamentals as a predominant look or feel mm-hmm. and maybe that's because I don't love to cook I'm not a great <laughs> I love to eat so I love people who do cook but that isn't I, mean, I think a lot of people enter the garden because they love to cook and so the the kitchen and garden connection is really strong for them uh for me I just I'm a digger I like to be out there in the dirt um and as long as I have cheese and crackers for dinner I'm fine if I can, you know, collect lettuce and carrots and raspberries from the garden, great. But right. um, we eat them raw. So um, we had that. And then we moved to a very exposed ridgetop garden in outside of the city of Loveland in Colorado. And it was there that I all of a sudden really started to exercise my native plant muscles because it was finally in an area where that made the most sense that I was immediately surrounded by wildland on all sides. And I had deer and elk and rattlesnakes and bobcats. And um, within the first year of being in this house and garden, we had a rattlesnake in the kitchen. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> which was pretty exciting. And yeah. um, I was like, girls, stay on the stairs. And I kind of like walked around the top of the, the kitchen counters and I got a colander and I was able to throw the colander on top. It was a big colander and it was a little snake. Uh, and I got the colander on top of the little snake and we were able to get it back outside. Oh my gosh. Um, it was, it was kind of, int- it was, a, it was a, an adventure. Um, but so that, and, and at that point, so this would have been 2006, five, mm-hmm. six, seven, before we were, uh, re- we relocated to Northern California with a job move. There were a lot of really fun and interesting things being done with the native plants of Colorado and a lot of interesting people doing work on introducing more Colorado natives to the growing industry so that they were available in the trade. And you could say, oh, I love that little yellow daisy on the side of the road and go to a nursery and actually have a chance of finding it. And so that was that was a really exciting kind of connection for me to realize that 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 was a progression that needed to happen if people were going to move to working with more natives we actually had to have more natives available for them to work with right and this was this was something that i it hadn't really all come together in my head for me before but lauren springer was really active in this kind of work and i think it's called the laporte nursery up in 
Fort Collins was very involved in that. And the Denver Botanic Gardens did a lot of really interesting work in that field. So we lived on this very rocky exposed ridge garden for about two years before uh, my husband at the time was offered a position in Northern California. And um, it was a hard decision. It's It's hard to leave a region. His mother was there my sister or cousin, like that's where we had family, but Mm -hmm. this was sort of an exciting opportunity for his work. And I made the final kind of choice that I, I can do my work almost anywhere, you know, and to work in, to garden in a whole new environment seemed like it would be fun and interesting. So, so we moved here and I, we were in a sort of larger, more wildland uh, house and garden until we were divorced five years ago. And that's when I moved to this garden. And it's, it's great for me to be in a very small and very typical suburban kind of house and garden because it reminds me of some of the constraints that, you know, most people have to follow if right. you have a little garden at all. Um, and my last two gardens were uh, were atypical. They were not normal in town gardens. And this house, when I first moved in, had the benefit of being a completely blank slate around it. And when I say blank slate, I mean that whoever had constructed the house uh, just you know had cleared the lot the way builders do, and then whoever had lived in it first just covered it literally covered all exposed soil <laughs> with decomposed granite. Like it was oh all my gosh. a pathway. So, you know, they saw this as a great benefit because it was low maintenance. Anybody else looked at it and went, but it just looks like a big kitty litter yard. <laughs> and, um, but I knew that that was not a big drawback for me because it gave me the opportunity to do whatever I wanted. And, right. um, and I look, I look down, there's, there's some open space not too far away that are old preserved native oaks, some are valley oak and our blue oak in this area. And I look straight down my street at uh, an open space that has some of our native grasses, a lot of uh, spring and summer wildflowers, some of our vernal pools and their endemic plants. And So it's very easy to visualize what I want to put in my garden that meshes and speaks to those different native areas. I am slowly continuing to progress in my maturity in terms of not wanting things that don't want to be here. Right. So roses actually do beautifully here and they don't require a lot of water once they're established and they love the hot. It gets very hot. I think I'm, I'm USDA zone 9A. So sort of similar to you, but no humidity. Yeah. Right. Very very different. Yeah. And um, I get very hot in the summer. So an average July, August, early September day is, you know, anywhere from a hundred to 115 um, and we go about eight months on a, on a year where we have a normal winter. We go about eight months without any water at all. Oh in my! The summer, so that you will, we will end our potential for rain sometime in April, May, and we really don't start up again until November, December. Wow! And um, so that that's an interesting thing. And and I have on this particular house and garden, there was a seedling volunteer Cottonwood, who I consider to be my best friend. (laughs) And I talk to her every day and say, you're great. And the neighbors say, when are you going to cut that weed tree down? (laughs) And I say, not over my dead body or over my dead body. Right. And I've had two seedling oaks taken the back. Um, And so I've worked with a a nice combination, what I consider to be a nice combination of um, natives and non-natives at at the front of the garden, the house, the whole front garden faces directly south Mm. and has no shade. So I've done almost all natives out front. So I have like beautiful deer grass, which is um, Muhlenbergia rigans here, and I'm sure other 
areas have something called deer grass. Right, right. Something <laughs> different. And when I was looking to move into this house, there was there was definitely this sense of of sadness and transition and and loss in in my life with the with the divorce and separation or separation and divorce. And and so it I really wanted to make this garden feel embracing and like me and protective. So out the front, I have, I I had a very clear vision for the front garden of this house, which faces the road that I wanted to see white roses with kind of that blue green color of sage Mm -hmm. and then the deer grass coming up through it. And I, that was like a vision clear to me from, I don't know, very early (laughs) looking at the house. And that was the first thing I put in. And now um, it looks exactly the way I had hoped it would look, which is fresh with the, the, the roses, which are just iceberg roses, but here they keep a beautiful, like green, fresh green all summer with very little water and nice. they bloom profusely. So they always look fresh, but the, the feng shui of having roses out the front is a clear, like looks pretty nice, <laughs> nice and prickly. So right. Keep your distance. Um, and then that sagey green, I have two, I think I have three different native sages out front of the salvia. So I have salvia, uh, leucophila and I have, uh, salvia, it's the one that's prickly. Now the names have gone, but I have, I have three different native salvias out front. Okay. And then, and they keep that sort of blue, green, fuzzy foliage year round. They are really happy. So you have to really kind of work with them to make sure they don't eat the sidewalk or eat <laughs> each other. Uh, and my neighbors will often say, when are you going to have a chance to cut that back, Jennifer? Um, and I'll say right now, and then the the deer grass gets this beautiful sort of fountain silhouette, uh, and you cut it back hard maybe every other year, but it turns this beautiful wheat color. So that fresh green with the white roses, and then the blue green of the salvias, and that wheat color coming up in late summer is really pretty. So awesome! Well, it sounds like you've definitely cultivated your garden in the style that you that makes you happy. And that is a probably gleans from all the different influences of your life and people who have influenced you. I think another phrase that I kind of want to wrap this up, but it's something I do want to touch on is use a hashtag garden church quite frequently. I just mm-hmm. wanted to see how that also influences you in your own garden and, and even just being in other natural spaces. I hesitate to use the word spiritual because it just sounds so flaky and and can be used. So it can be used in a way that I don't love. So I just know that my greatest connection to this world is through my garden and it brings out the best person in me. And my mother was a huge believer in the sort of like Tao of compost that we (laughs) will go back into the system and we will, we will, be food for someone else soon enough. And that is the way it should be. And so I really see the garden community as my greatest source of spiritual strength and meaning and hope. And so, and I, I see being in my garden as one of my, and, and communicating with other gardeners, like this conversation with you or being out on the trail with the group or taking my kids out and, picking flowers for their May Day baskets, that that to me is one of my greatest forms of prayer and communion in this world. And so um, that is why I use that term, Garden Church, because it's it's my church and God, whoever she is, looks like maybe she, <laughs> she meets me there. No, I, I definitely appreciate that because I can feel similar sentiments on many occasions. I just, it's something it's hard to uh, express or even write down. And it's, you know, mostly feelings and thoughts, like, like you mentioned earlier about being a feeler and a thinker. Um, and I appreciate that. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, and I love your program and 
I love hearing about what's happening in Houston and <laughs> the episode last week about Florida and the native orchids there. And it's a good network of plant lovers. Well, I mean, and thank you for doing what you do. And, um, you know, when I found your podcast, I was kind of ecstatic because it was, you know, something I was looking for. And it's one of the reasons I started my podcast is because I felt like the conversations were missing and I'm glad you are doing what you do. Well, thank you. Hey there, a little bit of an addendum to this episode. Jennifer emailed me after the fact stating that she wanted to include a little bit of a gratitude to her partner, John, for all the work that he did in designing and getting the garden into the state it is for her. She felt that it was an oversight in the episode that she didn't include him and she wanted to make sure that was added into the episode. And I tried to splice it into a good portion of the episode here at the end, but it really didn't jive quite well. So I'm adding it here on the end and I hope you guys enjoy it. So I want to start out the description of what I have done in this garden by acknowledging that my partner, John Whittlesey, has really been instrumental in transforming this previously kitty litter decomposed granite lot into a thing of great beauty. He helped me transform the front first as sort of a moving in gift and then he brought in over 16 yards of soil to the back to create a, a better level and raise the site and provide better soil to put in a back garden. I couldn't have done any of what I have done without him. For my 50th birthday, he put in a raised retaining bed along the west, hot west side of my house, and we planted it entirely with native pollinator plants. I say entirely, but there are a few non-natives, but it's primarily native pollinator plants that can take that kind of direct exposure to the sun and heat and low water.